All right, I'd like to welcome everyone this evening. First, let me do a disclaimer. I'm not Brother Barry. I know he wants to look like me, like he said that one week when he preached. But he, we had to not have last week because of the ice. He was scheduled to do Revelation. And so this week, he's out of town. And so he's going to do it next week. So I know you're all disappointed. Please don't leave. You'll hurt my feelings. But uh, <laughs> so I'm going to do, I was going to do this starting after Brother Barry. But I'm going to do, we're going to do one before. But it's kind of, kind of the doctrines of our church and the church and what we believe and why they're important. And so tonight I'm going to be talking about the Bible. And then also I'm going to go into things to come. So I'm going to touch on Revelation. And next week you can see if Brother Barry really knows what he's talking about, if we match up or not, okay? And so uh, Lisa goes, I don't know if I'd go there or not because, you know, if he doesn't say the same thing, I said, well, I'm his boss. So if he doesn't say the right things, I like to tell him that since he told me that for years. But, um, but let me just say this, not this Sunday night because I'm having compassion for the church because I know it's Super Bowl and I want people to come. But starting the following Sunday night, the video series we've been doing in his image where we did the American gospel and all of that. We're going to be doing one called When God Speaks. And a lot of things are attacking the Bible today. The inerrancy of the word of God, the inspiration and all of that. And the same people who put those two on put on a thing about the Bible. And so for two weeks, we're going to do it in two weeks. But we're going to be doing that to lead us into spring break on Sunday night. Starting not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. So I'm going to be touching on some of this today, some of it a little bit overlap, not a lot of it, but anyway, it's really good, and I think you'll enjoy it, so that'll be on Sunday night starting um, whenever I said, a week from Sunday. So as we're starting a new series, and then we're going to skip next week, Brother Barry will be here, and I'll be back after that, so I expect to see all of you back in two weeks, please, and, uh, but we're going to look at some specific doctrines for the church. The content of what we believe is found in what we call the Articles of Faith. And tonight we're going to look at the Bible or Scripture and then also things to come. Each week we'll ask two important questions in this series. What do I need to know and why do I need to know it and why is it important? So what do I need to know? First, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men supernaturally inspired. That is the truth without any mixture of error for its matter, and therefore it and shall remain to the end of the age. The only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man, the true center for Christian unity, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. And so what is the Bible? The Bible contains 66 books. It contains two sections, an Old Testament, which was written over a span of 1,100 years, the New Testament, which was written over a span of a hundred years. There was a 400-year span between Nehemiah and Matthew, or, the, or really before Christ came in the Gospels. And so it was over a span of 1,500 years that all of the Bible was written. Testament means covenant or an alliance between two parties, an agreement or promise. The Old Testament covenant was brought to fulfillment in the New Testament. Through Israel, the entire world would learn of God's covenant to send a redeemer. The Bible is all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is anticipated. It speaks of him coming. In the gospel, Jesus is revealed. In the books of Acts, Jesus is preached. And in the epistles, Jesus is explained. 
How is it written? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew primarily, and the New Testament was written in Greek. A Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint was made by a group of 72 Jewish scholars at about 250 B.C. for the Israelites. The books were arranged according to similarity of subject matter, and this is the the order of our Bible today. In the arrangement of the books of the Old Testament, and here's the thing, so many times we think they're chronological. They're not chronological, okay? If you think they're chronological, you're going to go nuts, okay, because they're not chronological. So here's the way they're broken up so you can kind of know. The first five books are the law or the books of Moses, and they go from Genesis to Deuteronomy, so they're all compiled together. The next 12 books from Joshua to Esther would be called the books of history. So if you study those, it's just talking about the history of Israel a lot, and a lot of them parallel as you're reading them. Next would be the next five books would be the books of poetry. The poetry books are the wisdom books. This would be from Job to Song of Solomon. The major prophets, there's five books of those are from Isaiah to Daniel. The minor prophets are 12 books, Hosea to Malachi. The difference between the major and the minor prophets is the length of the writings. The longer ones were major prophets, and it has nothing to do with their importance. Sometimes some people don't know why they were written. The first book that was written was Job. Then Genesis was written next about 1445 to 1405 B.C. Nehemiah was the last book written between 424 and 400 B.C. So that's kind of how the books were written. Job lived before the flood. All of that was written then, and so it's kind of confusing. You go, why wouldn't Job first? Well, then that would really be confusing, okay, because then you'd go right into Genesis after that. But the books of Genesis in the beginning and Revelation at the end are the two that fit chronologically. The rest all go in between there. The arrangement of the books of the New Testament, the gospel, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have one history book, Acts. It kind of gives the history of the church. Next, we have Paul's letters. 13 books, Romans to Philemon. Then we have general letters, eight books, Hebrews to Jude. One prophecy book, Revelation. The order of the four Gospels is known as the Augustinian order. That is named after the early church father, Augustine. He thought these were the chronological order, but modern scholars have pretty much found out that Mark was probably the first Gospel that was written. But the reason we have that order today... The order of Paul's writing is based on length of the letter, the longest to the shortest. So the longest church to the the longest letter to the church, Romans, was first all the way down, then the longest letter to the individuals all the way down. And I don't know why they decided to do that. They just need to pick an order. That's why they did it. James was the first book written around AD 44 to 49. All the books of John were written last, with Revelation being the last one written somewhere around AD 94 to 96. Here's a little bit more information about the Bible. There were no chapter and verse divisions until around the year A.D. 1214. So can you imagine trying to find something in your Bible? If we were preaching and go, okay, look over into Matthew and just turn four pages into Matthew and then I'm going to be reading and you just catch it. No way. Of course, they didn't really have it all then. But anyway, That's when the books were divided into chapters. Over 300 years later, verses were given numbers. So now the verses had numbers, so for simplicity of finding something in your Bible. How was the book of history covering over 2,000 years written? And how could it have a single theme? 
There's two clear statements from the New Testament to answer these questions. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll look in verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We're going to be looking at quite a few little scriptures tonight, so be ready. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God used them to speak his word, even used their personalities. We'll look. Now flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. 2 Timothy 3. 16. Scripture says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. To understand that the Bible originated in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. It was given to man by inspiration. (coughs) And in this video we're going to watch in a couple of weeks, one of the things it said that I thought was so cool, and some of these things I didn't really realize were issues, but I guess they are. But they were talking about that maybe the Jews just wrote this to proclaim their own story, and they kind of made it up. One of the guys, and I'm kind of paraphrasing all this, one of the guys said, if you look at the scripture, why would the Jews write something about we're going to be persecuted, destroyed, murdered, all of those things. That's not the kind of story you would write for yourself. But yet we know that this all came from God and it was prophesied all the way through. So it originated in the mind of God. The the biblical sense of inspiration means God so superintended the writers of Scripture that they wrote what he wanted them to write, disclosing the exact truth he wanted to convey. The word inspired literally means outbreathe from the mouth of God. There are three terms to help us understand the truth of inspiration. There's plenary inspiration, which means all of Scripture is inspired, not, mere, not merely some parts. There's verbal inspiration, which dictates the, that inspiration extends to the words of the Bible themselves, not only to the ideas. God did not dictate the Scripture mechanically, but guided and superintended the writers within the framework of their own personalities and backgrounds. And that's a miracle in and of itself, the way God did that. And then we have plenary verbal inspiration. It stresses the authenticity and reliability of the very words that were written without depriving the writers of their individuality. The Bible as we know it today is called the canon of scripture. That is, those books recognized as inspired. In the Lord's time, the Old Testament was viewed as a completed collection He and the apostles referred to this collection as the scripture. Our canon today was confirmed at a church council held in Carthage in A.D. 397. Three criteria were used in recognizing canonicity. First was the book apostolic in origin. Did the apostles write it or were they behind it? 
Next was the book used and recognized in the churches. And these churches knew and they would recognize and read these scriptures. And that's how they recognized that some of them were inspired by God and some were not. And did the book teach sound doctrine? The apocrypha, the apocrypha I'm sorry, meaning hidden, were not included based on the answers to these three questions. The Jews never recognized these books as part of their Old Testament. New Testament writers quoted from every book of the Old Testament except the Apocrypha. How were the books of the Bible named? Some of the books in the Bible have their names based upon the various topics in which they write about. This would include the books of Kings, 1st and 2nd, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Other books such as Psalms and Proverbs are named for their literary form in which they are written. Paul's letters are named after either the churches to whom he was writing, such as Thessalonica, Corinth, and all of those, or the individual he was addressing, such as Timothy, or some of those. The four Gospels are named after the individuals whom it was believed authored that works. So is the Bible reliable? Can we believe it? Can we rely on it? And this is something I hope you can use and kind of understand that you can help teach kids, you can help explain some of the truths of the Bible. Science, scientists and all of us speak in what is called, I'm going to try to say it the right way, phenomenological language. That is, we describe things as they appear to be rather than precise scientific terms. And sometimes people say that's why the Bible's not true because it uses these terms. But this is common in the Bible and also to say that the sun rises in the east is a phenomenological statement. Technically, we know that the sun does not really rise, but even the Naval Academy uses the term sunrise. We would not charge the almanac with error. There is no contradiction between true science and the Bible because science is a changing discipline. So look over in Job chapter 26. We're going to look back in the Old Testament for a little bit. Job chapter 26. Again, the oldest book. Job chapter 26, verse 7. It's interesting, and you can do some study, and I didn't do it for time's sake, but you can do some study over what the belief system was at the time these were written. So in Job chapter 26, verse 7, Scripture says, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. This states that the earth hangs on nothing. This is the oldest book of the Bible, and science didn't at that time believe that statement. How did the writers know? God told them. See, many of them believed that someone or something held it up. A pretty common belief was that elephants were holding it up. And then someone said, what's holding up the elephant? And then they said, well, a snake. Then somebody went, well, what's holding up the snake? What's on a celestial sea? Some of them believe a turtle. And one lady asked, well, what's holding up the turtle? Another turtle. So what's holding up that turtle? Another turtle. Then they finally went, there's just a whole stack of turtles. And so everybody, you know, Greek, Atlas had to hold it up. Then Hercules, then back to Atlas. And all these things they could not understand. But Job, the oldest book, says it hung, it was hanging on nothing. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If I can find it. If I can't find it, somebody read it for me. Isaiah chapter 40. It is on 711. We must have the same Bible. No, I'm kidding. 632. 
in the real Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. I'm kidding. 40, 22. I don't even know what Bible I have. It says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. When I'm dealing with kids a lot, I'll go, you know, when you have a, a history test, or geography, or whatever, and they go, when was the earth, when they discover the earth was round, I'd always tell them, say Isaiah. Why would I say that? I said, because I thought he was the first one. Okay? This was 700 years before Christ, that the earth, the circle, it's a sphere, and this was 700 years before Christ. Look over in Job chapter 40. Go back to Job chapter 40. I don't even know if I want you to... When I, do, when I deal with kids with this, I have them just close their eyes and listen. But Job, in fact, let's do that. Y'all just close your eyes. Don't go to sleep. No snoring. Close your eyes and listen. Job chapter 40. Everybody, you, you didn't, y'all don't trust me. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Yeah, keep looking. Close your eyes and listen to what I'm describing. For now at the behemoth which I made along with you, he eats grass like an ox. See, now his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in the covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Describing dinosaurs. So here we go. We hear all this stuff, and we know that we have these behemoth, these giant creatures that are now described. Look over in chapter 12 of verse 41, or you can close your eyes again if you wish, but none of you did it. So anyway, it says, I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flashing for, his sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. What is that? A dragon. I always thought those were fake. But here's Job talking about them. And so we go through, and a lot of times in Scripture we don't even realize, and if you go back into Genesis, in creation, he created the large sea animals. Why do you think God said large? Because evolution starts with the small, and everything grew from that. God said, no, he created the large. So I'm going to contradict that right off the bat and expose that flaw. Look over in Jeremiah 33:22. Jeremiah 33:22. Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 22. 
As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who ministered to me. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered. If you go back and do research in history, you realize that for so long, they numbered the stars. It is just till the last few centuries that they determined you cannot number the stars. But they used to believe you can. The first number, I believe, if I rec- my recollection is right, is they come out with 1,222 stars. That's what they knew for sure because they'd studied them. And then it came out, nope, nope, they're wrong. It's 1,226 stars. We found four more. Then they kept going and going. Then telescopes came along and all of that. And as science continues to prove, right here, the Lord says you can't number them. And now we realize you cannot number them. And so we know that always science is changing. There are 333 precise prophecies of Christ's first coming in the Old Testament, and they were all fulfilled. How would they know that? God. And the thing is, many of them did not even understand what they were writing. In Psalm twenty-two, thirteen, you don't have to describe, but it's describing Christ's crucifixion at that time in, in Psalm 22. And so why do I need to know this? The book... The Bible has far and away become the bestseller of all of history and has been translated into more language than any other book. The Bible is God's chosen instrument to unfold to us his true character. He tells us where we came from, what our ultimate destiny is, and the purpose for our lives. He gives practical instructions, heart-thumping encouragements, warnings, and divine wisdom. The Bible does not become the word of God. It already is the word of God. Just like your television set is a television set, whether it's on or not, this is the Word of God. It's always been. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God, not something less. We can open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, thus allowing Scripture to become personal to our lives. And if you're a child of God and you open up God's Word and you read it and you study it, the Holy Spirit will enlighten you and it will speak to you. It will convict you and it will be something that encourages you many times and it speaks to you. Look over in John, Job chapter 23, verse 12. Job chapter 23, back to Job. Again, the earliest book. And we do always know what Job went through. The Bible can make you feel whole, satisfied, loved, and connected. Job 23, 12. said, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth. And I think about Job, and I was speaking about this Sunday that when these, these people in these countries that never have had a Bible and they get a Bible, this is the way they respond that they treasure the word of God. Job treasured the words of his mouth, of the Lord's mouth. And we, as we have God's word right here, and so many times as Christians, we do not treasure that. It's just another book. But we need to be as Job and treasure it. Your faith is rooted in the Bible. We do not worship the Bible. We trust in it. It has your, are your opinions, worldviews, and actions in line with God's word. Look over in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Flip back to the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, right before James. Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12. Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4.12. 
For the word of God is a living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible changes lives. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It speaks to us. It pierces us. It convicts us of our sins. It tells us that we have a need of a Savior, and it changes our lives. And one thing about it that we can say about the Bible being true and God's word being true and God being true is I can speak, he's changed my life. What greater testimony? And here's the thing, somebody can try to disprove the Bible, they can try to disprove there's no God, but they cannot disprove that my life is different and I've been changed. They can't disprove that. And so the same is true with you. We are different. Look over in the 119th Psalm. 119th Psalm. 119th Psalm, verse 105. 119th Psalm, 105. All of you know this passage anyway. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word directs our lives and guides us through this world. Does it really matter of what we believe about God's word? The answer is yes, because the Bible is the creator of the universe speaking directly to you, telling you about who he is and how he loves you, tells you about how life is, tells you about how to live life, tells you about how you can have a relationship with him, how you can have eternal life, how you can know him, how you can have a joy, you can have a peace. And you can know God. And so many times we all want to know God more. We want to know, okay, who is he? We want to know all these things. And he's written it all for us. And it's so, it's so interesting that as time keeps changing, as we keep growing in our technology and all these things, and the things we can know and learn and research we can do, all goes back to prove that God's word is true and God's word's alive. And that video we're going to look at in a couple of weeks does some great about artifacts and about all kinds of things. And it goes into a lot of detail and it's really good. A lot of smart people talking that can even give you more insight and more encouragement that God's word is true. And we can stand on it. We can believe in it. We can trust it. And so now we're going to look at the things to come. What do we need to know? First... To go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. First thing we need to know is we're all going to die. There's death. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. That's what we're going to look at. And it says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> Paul speaking here saying, when you, if you're a saint, if you're a child of God, we can be confident, well pleased, that when we take our last breath, we will enter into the presence of the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Well, where's the body? We're going to look at it in just a second. You're going, okay, if we're absent from the body, it's not just the body's with you. So if you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These will all tie together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 13. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. New Testament talks about those who are in Christ going asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So you can't come with someone unless you're with them. I could say, why don't we all go, y'all all go with me to Roses after church. Well, the only ones that are going to go are the ones that are with me. Okay? And so you can't go with someone unless you're with them. So if when the Lord comes back for his return, those that are going to come with him are the ones who are redeemed and already in heaven, as we just saw in 2 Corinthians. Then it goes on. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Well, that's confusing. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Still confusing. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. How can we do that? We don't even understand it. And so look over to Revelation, or not Revelation, sorry, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This will piece this together. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Romans 8, 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of the redemption of our body. Here's what happens. When I take my final breath, my spirit's going to go to be with the Lord. My body, hopefully all of you will come and shed a tear, will be in a casket. Okay? And um, do I want to say what I'm thinking? Okay, I told my son one time, I want him to do a joke. Don't do it, Lisa. As she said, don't say it. She's kind of shaking her head no. I'll tell you what I told him I want him to do. So you're ready. I said, I want everybody to walk by the casket. But I want to be spring-loaded. And I want him to have a button. I want him to, boom, hit that thing. I, bang, I come up. And I want a screen to come on and a sound and go, gotcha. And that's where I want to go out, okay? Just so you know, so you don't walk by if we do have an open casket. My wife will probably not allow that to happen to me. But that was my only desire for my service. But uh, anyway, probably not going to happen. But So in that... <laughs> so in that but here's what happens my body's going to be here my spirit's going to be in heaven when the Lord comes back that body that we just saw here in Romans 8 is going to come out and be, resur- be joined with my spirit in the air the dead body, the live spirit boom, together and it's going to be resurrected that's what that's talking about now look over in Revelation chapter 20 Revelation, hopefully that cleared some things up for you. Revelation chapter 20. That's the last book of the Bible, by the way. We just talked about that a minute ago. Revelation chapter 20. Look in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in them, in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone who's found, not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
These would be the ones that are not saved. These are the ones that do not know Christ as their Savior. They're not children of God. They will be cast into the lake of fire. So what we do is we look at these scriptures. We recognize those who are saved will be in the presence of the Lord. Those who are not will be cast into the lake of fire. They will be eternally separated from God in eternal torment. So that will happen first for most people. Possibly not. The next thing that will happen will be the rapture. So we have death, then we have the rapture. And uh, so with the rapture, look over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We were there once. And verse 16, we'll go back there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And let me just say this. As we go through the order, there's three different things to look at. There is three different thoughts on this. There's a pre-trib, meaning the rapture happens and then the tribulation. There's a mid-trib. That means that the, the rapture doesn't happen till the middle of the tribulation or the last three and a half years into the tribulation. And a lot of them get that off the day of the Lord, some in Daniel and stuff like that. And then you have a post-trib that means all the church goes through the tribulation. Okay? I, I believe and uh, with pre-trib, that's where I stand. Some of that may be because that's what I want to believe, okay? But I don't want to go through three and a half years of it. But... I believe scripture is pretty clear in teaching that. We're going to kind of look at that in a minute. Brother Barry will be handling all of that next week. Okay, so come back. But anyway, but no, in the mid-trib, some of that I get. Okay, but I believe the church is never mentioned anywhere in the tribulation when you go through Revelation and things like that. So that also makes it where I think it'll be pre. So we have the rapture because we're going to do pre-trib here. So 1 Thessalonians 4.16. I don't even know where I went with it. Here you go. Let me find it. It says... For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's when the Lord will come back. Okay, that's the first coming. He'll come back. And so then we look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we know that the rapture will happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a tough passage right here. Starting in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So this is talking about after the rapture we go, you're going to stand and, and it's not going to really be judged. Some people call it the beam of seat, things like that, okay? But here's what you'll do. You'll stand before the Lord and your work since you've been saved will be um, tested, is a good word. And here's what I read. I read somebody that said it this way, and I thought, that makes sense. And hopefully it will to you, too. Because this is kind of good. We're going, okay, are we going to be shamed? Are we going to be all of that stuff? Well, that doesn't happen in heaven. You go through Revelation, it's very clear that doesn't happen. But here's what this, this writer kind of said it would, he thought it would be like to help us understand. It's going to be like graduation, whether it be college or high school. A lot of people, maybe not a lot, but some get a lot of rewards. 
Okay, they get these awards, they get all these things. And yeah, you may be a little bit, well, I wish I'd have got that, or maybe should have tried a little harder, whatever. But everyone is excited that they graduated. And at the end of the day, they're all happy going, I made it. I remember going to my kids, and you see them, whether it be college or whatever, you got some of them, they didn't get any rewards, but they're going across the thing going, you know, giving all this stuff to their family, and everybody's all excited and all that stuff. But um, and they kind of said, that's kind of the way it's going to be. We may be saved just by fire, and we're going to recognize, okay, I wish I'd have done more, but because heaven is what is, then God's grace and the blood of Christ covers all of that. And so those are hard to take because I've heard preachers challenge before that when you stand before God, you're going to be punished, you're going to be all these things, you're going to be humiliated in front of all these people, all that stuff. It's not true. It's not true. And so, now it doesn't mean don't do anything. We're supposed to, we're supposed to seek those rewards, okay? And so look for those. Um, so now look over and, um, well, we don't have to look over there right now, but in 2 Thessalonians 2, and between chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation and Daniel's 70s week, it's where we believe and teach that the rapture will take place before the tribulation. The next that will happen will be the tribulation period. This will take place after all the Christians living have been removed. And you think about that. It's like a lot of people say, well, America is not mentioned in the tribulation period. Well, somewhat we are a Christian nation in a sense. May not look like it a lot, but there's a lot of Christians here. And you think about if all the Christians were gone, we even have the Christians here and look at our world, our country. What would it look like if all the Christians were gone? And we know that we're going to one day have a world government. Brother Barry will go into all this more detail. But, and we understand that all these things are setting up for the Lord's return. Because at some point in time, it's all got to come together. And they've all got to come and follow one person. They've all got to fall under one religion. They've got to all follow and believe the same, the same thing. And that the world is setting up for that today. And I think one of the things that I've kind of looked at is I saw this thing with COVID go along. And the whole world got on the same page. I never dreamed in my lifetime that could happen. But it all happened like that. And the same will happen again. The righteous, the righteous judgments of God during the tribulation will be poured out according to the book of Revelation. At the end of the tribulation period, Christ will come to earth to occupy the throne of David and reign for a thousand years. So flip over to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look just a little bit at Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. So we have the tribulation period. And one thing I love about it, and you've heard me say this before, but as I've studied kind of Revelation and done some things, I was always fascinated by the two witnesses. How they go along and, go along and just fire spews out of their mouth and they can just devour people. And I've never wanted to be like anybody, per se, except maybe one of those two. There's some people, I'd like some fire to come out of my mouth, kind of like that dragon thing, and I'd like just to torch them, just torch them a little bit, you know what I mean? But... None of y'all, I'm not saying y'all, but I'm just saying, you know, people, man, I'm going to get in trouble here. But anyway, you know what I mean. But I've always heard that, and that just fascinated me, that passage. And I would read it, and I would read it, and I was a kid, and I'd read it, and I'd read it. And it says that the whole world will rejoice. The whole world will celebrate. And I'd read that, and I'm going, 
Yeah, because I believed it. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Cell phones, computers. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, and I've been on some, and I've been some places that they don't even have running water, but these kids are running around with cell phones. They have huts that they don't have any electricity, but they have battery packs in the roof, solar battery packs to charge, not for electricity, their cell phones. It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my life. And yet, the whole world, see, I think it's setting up. The whole world will see it happen and rejoice. And so we know that that's going to happen. So now, next will be the second coming and the millennial reign. So let's look in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw a throne and that he that said and that they said on said again, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of the Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So it talks about here in these passages that Christ will reign for a thousand years. And Christ will overthrow the Antichrist, the false prophet, and remove Satan from this world. And his reign will be characterized by harmony, justice, peace, righteousness. And a long life will be brought to an end with the release of Satan after these thousand years. And what's going to happen is we know that children will be born and things like that. And then there will be a big battle because people are going to turn from God. And, and you go in, how is that going to happen when Satan is bound? How's it going to happen? And where are these people going to come? Because we're already going to be changed. So we're not going to be bearing children. Those that Christians, it could be the 144,000. There will be people who are saved even during the tribulation. That they will live right on into the 1,000 year reign. And then they will have children. They will all be saved. They will have children. And we know that none righteous, no not one, were born sinners they will be born sinners, and still some of them will reject over this thousand years Jesus and God. That blows my mind. And he's going to be ruling. And then when he releases Satan, then it gets crazy. Look over in uh, the judgment of the Lord. So let's look. This is the judgment of the Lord. This will be what will be next. After the release of Satan, he will deceive the nations of the earth and gather them to battle against the saints and the beloved city, at which time Satan and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven. So look at in 20, look in verse 9. 29, 20 verse 9. 
They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we know that in John 5.22, Christ will resurrect and judge the great and small at the great white throne judgment. And then look over in verse 11. That's what it talks about here in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here we have the judgment of the lost, that they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And then we have eternity. After that, be the next would be eternity. After the millennium and the temporary release of Satan and the judgment of the unbelievers, the saved will enter the eternal state of glory with God, after which the elements of this earth are to be dissolved and replaced with a new earth, wherein only righteousness dwells. Following this, the heavenly city will come down out of heaven and will be dwelling place of the saints, where they will enjoy forever fellowship with God and one another. And our Lord Jesus Christ, having fulfilled his redemptive mission, will then deliver up the kingdom of God, our kingdom to God the Father, in all spheres to triumph, God may reign forever and ever. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at this. This will be our last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards rose, who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be de- destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And so we know that the Lord will turn everything over to the Father and he will reign forever and ever. So why do I need to know this? One of the reasons we need to know this, we need to know that everyone is going to spend eternity in one of two places. And because of this, we recognize the importance that we share the truth that we have and the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the truth of the good news, the gospel, the truth that they need to be saved. They have to place their faith in them, not of works, lest anyone should boast, but that they place their faith in them. And that's why it's important. That's why we try to do so much in mission. That's why we try to do things here at the church to try to reach people. That's why every Sunday morning you hear me say the same thing over and over at the end of the passage about being saved. And here's one of the reasons why I say the same thing every week is that if you ever get in that situation 
I pray that you've heard it so much that you could almost quote what I say. And I don't want to say a bunch of different things because then you may go, okay, now I'm confused. But if I say the same thing over, over, and over, and you hear it, many times you'll begin to repeat it, and the Spirit of God will help you in that. And you'll be able to quote the very same thing and understand that. And so, but Revelation 22:12 says, Behold, come quickly. And Christ is coming quickly. And our time on this earth is short, just a vapor. And so it's important that we share the good news. It's important that we tell people about Christ. It's important that we live an obedient life. Because we never know when we'll take our last breath and when we'll die. And it's like we're having a ladies' event coming up. And they're going to be going through 1 John. It's not this Friday night, not the next Friday night, the next Friday night. It's a Friday night in there, the 25th and 26th, Friday and Saturday. I want to invite you to come, and what a great opportunity. If you know someone who doesn't know Christ, to bring them, and they're going to hear about the love of God. They're going to be going through 1 John. It's going to be great. It's going to be the beloved. And so it's a great opportunity for you to come. It's a great opportunity for you to be a part. You can sign up in the lobby, but it's also a time that you can invite someone. That's why we do these things. That you can invite someone that they can come and they can hear the word of God. And they can be around brother or sister. I guess there won't be any brothers there. Well, I mean, I'll be at the door probably, so there'll be one, I guess. But the sister's there that can be there. And it can, God can use that as they go through his word and challenge ladies. And someone who doesn't know Christ, they can come to know Christ. So I want to challenge you to be a part of that. Challenge you to invite somebody, try to bring them or whatever. And so I think it could be, it could be life-changing for somebody. And then we're going to be doing the Bible in two weeks on Sunday nights. And I want you to be thinking about coming to that. It just gives you some great tools as we've gone through about understanding the gospel, as we understand about sexual identity and everything that's going on there. Now we're going to be talking about even having this thing on the scripture and how you can know God's word is true. And I believe God's word true, but even when I watched this, I was going, there was some good stuff in there. And it was really good. And so you know that this is what some of the things like you've been seeing on Sunday nights. Some of those same people are what's at um, the summit that we send our college students in. People graduate from high school going into college to the summit. And those that have maybe been in college but haven't got to finish. But we send them there and they get two weeks of this kind of teaching. That they understand what they believe and how important it is. And one of the things about it is we've got a group getting ready to be going this year. It's been canceled the last couple of years because of COVID, but they're going to be having it again this year. And one of the things we ask for the church to do is we ask for the church to help sponsor these kids that they shouldn't have to pay for it. We want every student that comes through our doors and graduates to be able to go and be grounded in the word of God. And all of these issues they're going to face in college. And so I'll be challenging you, letting you know how many are going and if you can help sponsor a child, a teenager, and they got to be graduated from high school, go into college, or already in college, and then they get to go, and they get to just get to be pounded with these intellectual professors, I guess, these smart guys that teach all of these things and ground them. And I know, I've known some that have gone that they've struggled with sexual identity. There was a young man in our church, and I said, you know what? I said, in this, the Lord's timing was perfect. I said, I want you to go to Summit. He went to Summit, came back and said, no more. Now he's an advocate against all that. 
And he was at a Christian school that was going to just help him go through the transition. Christian school. Go figure that one out. But anyway, but he, life, God worked a miracle. And so it's so important that this next generation gets that and that they understand it. And so it's very important. So I'll be just, that's just a precursor. I'm not going to tell you the Sundays I'm going to do it, so you won't know. You just hear it, and then let the Holy Spirit convince you about that. But hopefully that helped you today. Kind of leads you into a little bit about things we things to come. Brother Barry's going to be here next work, week, and he'll be discussing all that and going through it. And he'll do a great job, and, and uh, he's taught it already, and he's going to break it all down into one week. And so be impressed. All right. What I want you to do, just tell him, go, well, maybe not, because I don't want him not to show up. But I was going to say, just tell him, you really don't need to come. Jeff handled all that. You know, he took care of all that. He, he did a great job. And he said, you know, that just get it all out of order. Kind of like, you know, he does that preacher man at his banquets and stuff. He gets everything out of order. Just say, yeah, he said something about the millennials going to be first. And then something about a tribulation 2,000 years later. And I'll kind of just get him all. Get him. Then he can come in there and straighten me out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time we can have tonight. Thank you that we can look into your word. And, Lord, thank you that your word is alive. Lord, we thank you for the things that are to come, Lord, that you give us a glimpse of that. And, Lord, even a lot of this we can't even truly understand. But, God, we trust it. And we, Lord, know we know that sometimes these things, as they progress and as science even changes and as things happen, we begin to recognize more and more the closer you are to your coming. And, Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to be ready to stand before you. And, Lord, help us not to be standing before you unashamed, but, God, we'd stand before you knowing we were obedient till our final day. And, Lord, thank you so much that we can trust and believe in your word that it's truth. Thank you for each one that's represented here today, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.